This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Uh, this is the second day of the OneTrop lecture. Uh, some of you, I suspect most of you were here yesterday to hear Kevin Bale's outstanding lecture. Um, what one of the audience yesterday referred to as a bracing lecture <laughs> about the 45 million like people wind. currently enslaved. And Kevin offered a both provocative and original accounting of the, not just the scale of slavery, of modern slavery, but what he referred to as the importance of understanding slavery in terms of intersectionality. I don't know whether he took that from Kimberly Crenshaw, Crucial. But, if, but either way, it was referring to the ways in which slavery cannot be understood outside of its relationship to, among other things, gender, violence, the environment, and I suppose what we might call capital flows, contemporary capitalism, if you like. All of these forces intersect in a way that amplify the significance of modern slavery. And he gave us a remarkable insight as regards what the footprint of modern slavery is if one looks at the types of activities which slaves are involved in and their environmental consequences in particular. So it was a very provocative talk. And as is customary, we, on the second day, usually have a roundtable discussion where we draw upon some of the expertise of the Berkeley campus uh, to, as it were, prime a conversation on the basis of that lecture. And we're extraordinarily lucky today to have three people who I'll introduce in just a second. Um, let me say uh, I'm going to not speak at length about each of the three interlocutors. Uh, all of them deserve much praise singing, uh, and their accomplishments deserve much more time than I'm prepared to give for the simple reason that you don't want to hear me talking about what they've achieved in their careers, but rather what they have to say about Kevin's talk. So I'm going to give you, as it were, a haiku version of their uh, multiple uh, accomplishments, so to say. And I'm going to introduce each interlocutor uh, in the order in which they speak. Uh, beginning with uh, Professor Arlie Hochschild, who's a professor emerita in sociology on this campus. Uh, Arlie, I'm sure, is known to all of you here. She's one of the great American public intellectuals. Uh, her multiple books uh, have all won numerous national awards for their significance, addressing questions as a sociologist of the importance of particular sorts of challenges confronting modern societies. Uh, her works, I think it's fair to say, are canonical books such as The Managed Heart on the Commercialization of Human Feeling, The Second Shift on Working Parents, and especially, of course, a book that has now become foundational to understand Trumpism, namely Strangers in Their Own Land, uh, uh, based on really, I suppose, what we would say ethnographic work she conducted in rural Louisiana. Second speaker will be uh, Enrique Lopez Lira, who is the director of the Low Wage Work Program in the Center for Labor Research and Education on this campus. Uh, Enrique's a labor economist and, of course, comes at uh, the sort of content of Kevin's talk from that vantage point, 
but he's also an advocate and an activist. And prior to coming to Berkeley, uh, he worked for one of the largest Latinx civil rights organizations, Unidos US, but he's also been deeply involved in policy in various levels, including uh, director for policy research uh, in an organization, a hugely important organization called Western Progress. And for those of you who are regular uh, watchers of CNN or Univision, he's often uh, been recruited to speak on these labor issues uh, on those and other public media. Eric Stover, uh, co-faculty director of the Human Rights Center and an adjunct professor of law and public health on this campus where he's been for uh, almost 30 years. Sorry, Eric. Uh, you, you don't look a day over 80. Um, uh, Eric is, of course, a major figure in the field of international uh, human rights. Uh, he had worked previously before coming here with Amnesty International, but his work in particular, I think of, in relationship to the breakup of Yugoslavia and the human rights atrocities um, that occurred there in Croatia, Bosnia, Kosovo, and so on. He was involved in the forensic DNA work, but his work has extended beyond that to questions of landmines in Cambodia. He's worked on human trafficking in California, and he's made a couple of, co-produced a couple of hugely important PBS documentaries, one on Tulsa and the other on the war on terror. So three incredibly distinguished people coming at the modern slavery question from rather different but complementary vantage points. Uh, the remarks will be delivered from the frontier in a more informal setting. Uh, we'll begin with Arlie, followed by Enrique, followed by Eric. Kevin will respond, and then we're going to open it up to questions from the floor. Arlie, all yours. Wow, what a pleasure. What a pleasure. Uh, uh, both Kevin and the company. Um, you know, the last time that I think Kevin and I were together, uh, was when he was giving a talk on his book, Disposable People. And I remember there was a, uh, a man in the audience who said, well, it's a very brilliant book and, and it's an important topic, but there, there are 689 million people in the world that are in dire poverty. And why are you just focusing on, on this and this 27? million uh, modern slaves. And Kevin was very, very humane, very circumspect. We understand, yes, there are uh, a great number of people in need. But these are my 27 million. <laughs> I love that. I love that because it spoke to his dedication and that actually when we are dedicated and we really do effective work, we do have to focus. And uh, I'd say, oh, so many problems, but no, this one I can work on, and here's how. So um, I think we have a lot to learn from this, uh, this my. Uh, and um, I understand his, uh, his talk, uh, which, I wasn't actually able to be at, but I've, I've seen, uh, I had to give a talk on my own yesterday, but um, that uh, he is in fact uh, taking this focus um, and uh, broadening it 
He's not letting go of it, but he's looking at its connection to everything else. And his 27 has now a move to 35. 45. 45. And um, so just to recap what, uh, what he's telling us here uh, is um, that this is a lot of people who are enslaved. It's today. They are everywhere. And uh, not just one locale. Uh, they are um, connected um, to uh, their captive. Uh, they're in unlikely places, protected uh, forest areas, and uh, they are uh, connected to industries that we know in the form of products that we buildings that we move and live in, and uh, cat food that we buy at the store, uh, and uh, shrimp, frozen shrimp that we eat for dinner, charcoal that uh, heats the uh, steel mills in the Brazilian Amazon. Uh, the charcoal is, is harvested from there. Um, prostitution, the prostitute next door that you don't know. So what he is doing is, uh, I think, lifting a veil over something that is uh, not known or focused on, and he's showing its connection to the place where we live and the issues that we care about. And I think his uh, focus here is, is to take the idea of intersectionality from an analysis of where it is and, and, and uh, how it uh, operates, but to take that idea back into movement making. How, what are the different movements in, in, uh, in the West and non-West uh, that we could tap into? Um, to create a larger geography of empathy, as we were talking about at dinner last time. So I have three um, questions I wonder about um, that I love your wisdom on. The first has to do with actually um, causal links between the uh, growth of domestic slavery and the decline of the price of uh, the slave. So um, you gave us the figure that in 1850, a 19-year-old field worker would be worth what would be $45,000 in today's money, which is a lot of, a lot of money, but that later's Today, it would only be like $100. So what we have is a cheapening of the, the labor, but a growth of laborers. And so as I always learned about the cause of slavery, it always had to do with those slaves being worth so much. So the higher the price, the higher the worth of the laborer, um, the more exploiters 
uh, exploit. But what you're saying is actually these things are not related, that actually as the labor becomes cheaper and in a way less of an incentive to exploiters, the exploitation still goes on. So, or, so uh, that's a disconnect and connect. I'd love to, conundrum, uh, love to hear you um, address. The second thing is, and I, I hope, hope this uh, doesn't overlap with what I'm Rick can be raising, but even if we do free all the slaves, have we gotten there? Because the slaves could be uh, liberated tomorrow, but then they would just be um, move into low-paid workers. So maybe I'll, I'll leave it there, but uh, uh, you're the expert on this. So, but that's something that, that occurred to me. Um, and the third question is about activism. And uh, I think it, it, it's an amazing idea to take slave labor as a problem to focus on, but to look at its connection to climate. So there we have climate activists, which are uh, uh, among young Americans, for example, it's a group, you know, prime prime issue, and uh, pollution uh, related to climate, but not, uh, not the same. Uh, that too, there are people concerned about that that could be become concerned about slavery once they learn about it. Exploitation of women. Um, again, there's a constituency, feminists and others, uh, that could be tapped. And, child protection uh, advocates. So uh, what one sees is a bunch of different moral constituencies, and the question is how to pull them together. So after you've succeeded, let's, well, and, and what they would do is try and get a UN declaration, let's say, um, and uh, some kind of international treaty. You can, each nation could make declarations of opposition to this. Um, so you would need a, this collection of people addressing in one way or another, many ways, uh, these issues. So I've been working in my own recent research with the far right. And I was thinking, well, what would they make of this? <laughs> they would be against it human slavery, actually, especially the evangelicals, and especially female uh, prostitution, forced prostitution. So that's a group that would have nothing else in common with all the other groups that I mentioned. But it's, it's a possible, I mean, it would take some high creativity, but that's an interesting thing. There are people I've met who would who were the last people you would meet <laughs> here in Berkeley, but who have genuine concerns for this. But what would they do with climate? No, they would say, that's for another. No, the left made that up. Uh, uh, contamination, they would say, no, that's all right. We're, we're tough. Mother Nature's tough. Uh, 
uh, got jobs, jobs, jobs. Um, and what they would do with child protection, uh, they would say yes, uh, close to home. Um, so you've got one kind of constituency, but I guess what I would love is your thinking on how to bring this group together. And I got to thinking, what are the models we have for um, a kind of come together activism? And I can think of quite a few uh, who, who, who bring things together. Um, there is a man named Saket Soni who uh, works with undocumented uh, laborers who clean up after hurricanes in the south and west among people who vote against him for the wall and he, who come to appreciate these experts now and he puts them in special you know, uniforms and says, you know, resilience workers and there's respect for them. Uh, so he's working in that way. So we need to look at the heroes, people who've done this thing, who don't just stick in their bubble, but who get cross alliances going. Uh, there is um, Deborah Gould at Santa Cruz, who's gotten gay and lesbian activists together with conservatives on uh, homelessness. And um, if we look at history, there are feminists and anti-slavery activists that have gotten together. And Thomas Clarkson, my husband Adam, has written a book, Bury the Chains, in which two formerly disparate religious groups, the mainstream Protestants and the oddball Quakers, you know, that wouldn't take their hats off unless it was before God and got these groups together. And together, they were dynamite in a way they, separately, they were not. So that would be my third uh, question for you. Thank you. Thanks, Harley. Thank, thank you. Um, thanks, everyone, for, for being here. And thank you for, for having me. Um, uh, I agree with Michael. It was an amazing presentation. Uh, sobering, but very important work. Um, uh, I had a chance to have dinner with Kevin and, and others last night, and so uh, we talked a little bit about this, but I, I'm going to make the points again because I, I want the audience to hear them. And part of our role is to get the audience thinking about these things and engaged uh, and so they can have some interaction with, with Kevin. So um, I'll repeat some of those points. But and, and, and what I have really are thoughts, not, not really questions for you, but thoughts. and. Uh, and, and uh, uh, trying to tie it to some of the work that, that we do at the Labor Center, and particularly in my program at the Low Wage Work Program. Um, so first I'll start with a couple of things that surprised me about Kevin's uh, lecture. Uh, one was the map, right? You know, the, just the global scale of this problem. No country is free of this problem. Uh, it's just a matter of magnitude of the problem, but it's a problem everywhere. And, and that was, that was uh, really uh, 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 astonishing to see. Um, the second is the drop in the price of slaves. And, and you know, I may have some thoughts in your question also. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about 
you know, some of these thoughts in light of those two things that surprised me, but then also uh, in, in terms of, of other dimensions. Um, so I wanted to start with the, the slavery definition that you mentioned yesterday, and, and I, th I think I have it right, but you correct me. It's uh, a relationship in which one person is controlled by violence through violence, the threat of violence or psychological coercion, has lost free will and free movement, is exploited economically and paid nothing beyond subsistence. That, is that fair? That's the old one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. The, the, the one that I mentioned yesterday as well is, is, is especially the one that's based on the um, 1926 League of Nations. It's the one that's become the generalized accepted definition, which focuses, it's not, none of that is negated, but the key concept is that whether a person can be treated as if they are property according to the indicia of a property law. Okay. So, if, if, you know, so if you can buy someone, if you can sell someone, if you can control, if you can leave them to your children, if you can take out a loan against them, or we, you know, anything that we actually is our property, we can destroy if we choose to. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's, I, thanks for clarifying that. Um, I, I don't think it, it negates sort of the no, thoughts that I have, which yeah. are um, some of the workers that, that you mentioned and that we deal with uh, don't fit every single aspect of mm. those, either of those definitions, but there's enough overlap that I think that you can think about the problem a little broader than uh, just the, the property definition or the yeah. physical threat definition, right? And so I'm thinking about um, migrant farm workers, home care workers, workers at meat, meat packing plants, uh, even restaurant workers, right? So in, in particular, the, the back of the house, you know, there's a lot of focus about restaurant workers at the front of the house, the, the waitresses and the hostesses, but the dishwashers and the cooks and during COVID, uh, there was talk about the great resignation, but a lot of the back of the house was not resigning. They were, they had no option but to go to, to work anyway. So uh, I'm thinking about the domestic workers, uh, landscapers, farm workers here in the North Bay in 2019 when uh, the fires came and thousands of residents fled, but those domestic workers that stayed to do the work and the farm workers they did the work under very dangerous conditions. The question is why, why did this, they stay? Um, I think of the farm workers now in, in, in Monterey County uh, with the Pajaro mm. River flooding, right? And they, they've lost everything because of the floods, uh, including their housing, but yet they're expected to go to work the next day. Right? Mm. Um, and so I think about these, a lot of these workers, uh, especially the undocumented migrant workers, uh, you can think of the broken immigration laws as that coercion that's keeping them in that, in that kind of work, right? Uh, so, so a lot of these workers are victims of violence uh, when they cross and then once they're here. But also the psychological coercion from the immigration system that allows their economic exploitation and earning subsistence wages, if at that. Mm. I'm also thinking about uh, low-wage workers who were deemed essential, like I said, during the pandemic, without an option to work from home, without health insurance, forced to risk their lives and their families every day, and uh, is the system we have in place that also you know, does not provide guaranteed health coverage to everybody. Uh, you know, many state paid leave is not available to, to everybody. And these are the, these serve as, as, as a stick, the psychological stick that keeps them in some of this work. 
Uh, you think about right to work laws in some states, state fiscal policies that reduce social safety net, uh, the inadequate care system we have, all of these serve as those coercion sticks that allow these workers to continue to be economically exploited uh, during the pandemic and today. Um, I also think about the unintended consequences of, as an economist I have to do this, the unintended consequences of economics, particularly neoclassical economics and their influence in the 80s and 90s, especially in terms of public policy with regard to free trade. And I wonder, um, you know, that free trade push of the 80s and 90s, what role it played in the current state of the modern slavery that you talk about. Uh, and I think this gets to some of your, your thoughts, right? Uh, these trade agreements are, and I think we talked about this last night, yeah. these trade agreements are often, often sold as a false choice. Well, if not for that swept shot, what, what would these workers do in these countries, right? And um, the free, you know, this, this free trade expansion, I think, has increased the demand for slaves. So Kevin talks about the price of slavery going down, and he talks about the fact that we have 8 billion people now, and so there's more slaves, if you will. So the, he's talking about the supply has gone up, right? The supply has gone up. If the supply goes up, right, then the price goes down. But the demand for slaves has also gone up because when you have these countries that are underdeveloped, engage in free trade agreements, now there's an opportunity for unscrupulous employers to try to get these workers and uh, treat them as slaves in order to extract their labor so they can make profit in the you know, free trade system. But if the demand is going up and the supply is going up and the price goes down, that means that the supply has gone up way more than the demand for slaves. But I, I, I raise that point because we should be you know, appalled that the demand has gone up. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the cause of these free trade, free trade agreements and this neoclassical belief in free markets uh, that has caused some of these uh, situations to occur. Uh, I also think about, uh, in terms of, uh, you had a graph that showed that the, the higher the prevalence of slavery, the lower the you know, GDP. And I think you know, we talked about it last night, and, and there's a lot of research showing that, that uh, uh, economic growth happens in freer uh, systems than, than not. But I also wonder, and we talked about this also last night, I wonder, in, in, in your lecture, you talked about how small, in terms economically small, these, uh, the country of slavery is. But in the countries where it occurs, I wonder how, what, what portion of the GDP is that industry that, that is uh, uh, having slaves, right? So the 55,000 brick uh, uh, kilns uh, industry, right? What, what percentage of GDP in those three countries is that? Because that determines the political will to do something about it, right? Um, I also wonder about the role of technology. Is it a tool to uh, free people from slavery or uh, increase the, the bondage of workers. So I, you know, think about, uh, you know, sex workers. You can make the case that because of the internet, some of these sex workers were able to free themselves from their pimp, 
and other entrepreneurs and have their own website, right? But you can also think about the, um, the way employers are increasing using algorithms and data to lower wages, worsen working conditions, increase race and gender inequities, and decrease worker power. So I'm curious on your thoughts about technology's role in this. Uh, and then the last point I'll make is that um, the work Kevin and the, the right lab uh, is, is fantastic, amazing. Uh, but given the global scale of the problem in your map, uh, we need 100 or 1,000 Kevins uh, and 100 or 1,000 right labs producing this research that will move not just the Bill Clintons of the world, yeah. but will also move the local officials, officials who many times are the ones who have the power to do something about it, but they turn a blind eye to it. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Kevin, get ready for an, I'm gonna add more to the avalanche here for you. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I wanna thank Michael Watts and, and the organizing committee. It really was an exceptional talk yesterday. We, we went into the never, never land. It was quite, quite overwhelming, but uh, really important. So first of all, full disclosure, um, Kevin and I go back actually to 2003, where we first met, and uh, we worked with a colleague in the law school and a team of students here at Berkeley and conducting the first uh, study of human trafficking in the United States. Yeah. And um, it was quite an exercise, uh, we got it done. And one of the, re we, the, our report, which you can look up online, is called Hidden Slaves. And it was the Human Rights Center with uh, Free the Slaves, uh, Kevin's organization at the time. And the reason I mention this is kind of interesting because yesterday Kevin's focus was so much on labor, less on sex trafficking. And it would be interesting to, to, you know, to talk about that too. One of the things we did when we began the study was we realized this was under the Bush administration. And if you recall, there was a lot of uh, chest pounding about uh, sex trafficking, but not about other labor sectors that were being affected. And so we really wanted to focus on those other sectors. Why? Because it's often the hidden trade here in the United States. You will get trafficking that comes coming up from Central America, that goes to Florida, to citrus, where you can hide people away. You can hide people away on poultry farms uh, here in, in the United States as well. So this, this idea of exposing that this issue is in so, so touching on so many aspects. So, um, also, I wanted to mention that at, at the center, we, we continue to do two, we did a study in Los Angeles and one in the Bay Area uh, looking at uh, human trafficking. And we did, and if I can shout out, that we helped write the California human, human trafficking law, which was passed. Um, and this was in 2004. Um, and today, one of our colleagues at the center is focusing on sex trafficking. She's focusing on, focusing on San Francisco, Julia Frichero. And what she's looking at, and this is something to think about in the, in the trafficking slavery area, the way in which these traffickers, it's something we found, the traffickers themselves, are very good psychologists. And they are aiming at foster care, particularly group 
foster care. It is a big issue. And the question becomes, how can you work with the foster care system to protect particularly those young women and young men who can get brought into, the, uh, into sex trafficking? One last thing that happened actually before I had to came yesterday to Kevin's talk, I had a conversation with somebody um, who works under the Flores Agreement. The Flores Agreement was passed in the, in the late 1990s, which gave uh, access to a group of lawyers here in the Bay Area, access to migrant children in detention. And uh, we're talking about some possible, uh, perhaps PBS NewsHour pieces we might w work on. And it was very interesting because she mentioned her team actually goes into detention facilities around California, along the border, states, and so on. And they're, I just thought I'd pass this to you, Kevin, as well, is that what they're st starting to see of the migrants they're visiting in, in detention facilities are indigenous migrants that are coming up from Central America. Mm -hmm. And the big question is, is this an effect of climate change? So we're even seeing that those communities in, in Altiplano, in Guatemala, the people, these young people are now coming to the United States because they can't work in the fields like they could there. And you may have seen there was a very good uh, New York Times article recently about the surge in migrant, uh, young migrant labor uh, trafficking going on. So I, may, uh, may, uh, I want to just end with three questions. And these are kind of practical things, but I thought, since at the Human Rights Center, we have an open source investigations lab as well, and hope to collaborate with the, with the rights lab, is, is the rights lab where you're doing this work, are you able to work in the countries where you're seeing slavery with universities or uh, groups there to, to train them in using these uh, open source investigation techniques? Is there any effort there? Because I think this is really important that while a lot of our tech expertise is coming from here, um, except for the banks closing, of course, but uh, it's how can we work in with local, with universities in countries uh, or NGOs in countries where slavery is taking place? The second is Kind of shifting to is asking, how have you thought about? Do you work with law enforcement? And you know, it's easy to think, well, you know, we 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 show how terrible this issue is, the problems, and so on. But at some point, you're going to have to engage with law enforcement. And what are the challenges there? Have you had any experiences? Anything to be gained? My last question. Um, and, uh, and of course, that goes to this point that Arlie was mentioning in the geography of sympathy, you know. Um, can you work with law enforcement on these issues and so on? The third question is one of packaging. And that is all this wonderful research you've done, it's something we all face, is, and this comes actually from the Logan Symposium that we have here on campus with the journalism school. We had a speaker, and he was a journalist from, um, from Sao Paulo in Brazil. And he focuses on the Amazon basin. And his journalism, his team, they work on this. But one of their biggest challenges is how do you get people in the cities, in Rio de Janeiro or, or, or Sao Paulo or wherever, 
to really care about what happens in the Amazon basin. And so how, uh, what have you learned? What are the challenges? What can you share with us about how you package this information? And um, not only so it appears in the Guardian or the San Francisco Chronicle, the New York Times, but how do you package it to take it to government officials? How do you actually move into that geography of sympathy and go to politics and, and persuade people? So with that, I'll end my last question. Thank you, Eric. Please, uh, Kevin. I think I'll go back the other way, if that's sure. okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a lot, guys. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> this, is, this, this is a lot. So I'll, but I'll try to hit most of the, most of the things we've been talking about, and, and, and probably in reverse in some ways. Um, packaging, for one. That wasn't Leonardo Sakamoto, was it, that you were working with in Brazil? No? OK. It's just he's, he's also a key player with us and, and has been doing anti-slavery work there and, and, and environmental work in Brazil for a very long time. Um, talk about an old chestnut if you're a university professor, is how do you turn your work into something that reaches everybody? Right? Uh, in the UK, they, they beat us over the head with this because every university is competing against every other university, and they actually measure our sound bites, our newspapers, and all this kind of stuff. So we have people within the lab that push this information out all the time, trying to get it out there. But does it click? Does it, you know, does it bite? And particularly, does it bite uh, as the winds of politics keep blowing back and forth? So when you say, do we work with police? The answer is yes, we work extensively with police and, and very senior police. And uh, you may have heard of Theresa May, who was the prime minister. She's now a member of the Rights Lab. And she was, of course, the home, before she was prime minister, she was home secretary, which is the head of law enforcement and the head of courts and all that kind of thing, and was the person who made, brought in the modern slavery laws um, uh, some years ago. But she's been, you know, she's not, she's not of that current government today. And, that, and the government today is one that she's standing up as a conservative and denouncing over and over in Parliament, because even though she's right-wing, she's not a lying bastard like the Prime Minister, right, is, is, is the short answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> and because uh, there's a corruption that's occurred there. So I, I, I think the, the, the tricky answer is the one that I don't know the answer to, except that we just keep plugging at it. I know you plug at it, we plug at it, I, we plug at it. And, and in some ways, maybe we need to be reaching out to donors to say, can you buy us the best possible public relations outfit to take us on or something? Because most of us don't know how to do it any better than we do, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not bad at it, I think, because I can push popular re readable books out, I hope. Mm -hmm. But can I go on all the talk shows and and, and swing people? No, I'm not. I'm not sure I can, I can do that. Now I can't spend that much that much time on every single one of these questions. But I want to. One of the things I wanted to touch mention is that you were talking about how sex trafficking is a very important uh, zone, and people are still hooked on it and like that, and and uh, and it's and it runs parallel, and that's absolutely the case. But one of the things that we pushed hard, and we've pretty much achieved on the other side is to say, is to stop using this term sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. Because it sounds a, a bit racy. It's, it's always given this impression of 
of abused lovely young women or something like that, and we talk about people who are enslaved into commercial sexual exploitation. And we, you know, okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's more syllables, but we try to say, no, this is about the enslavement of human beings into commercial sexual exploitation, so that we get the point across, as opposed to a, a funny picture. And, and it helps, it helps. And I have to say that um, it also helps when we, when we talk to the, to the police and to government um, about p kids in foster care who are also in the UK being, being targeted by groups. And we, there's something in, in the UK at the moment that's called the county lines problem, but it, what it's all about are primarily drug gangs who lure children into their ambit and then use them for drug delivery, drug transport. They're basically little mules that cross from county to county in England, and they're used in that way. And it's, so it's, and, and they're both sometimes out of foster care or out of state care and like that. The, I think the rights life has a long way to go in terms of, I, we do a good job now, but we're all facing that, that, that ability to translate everything that we do, especially some of the crazy ideas that we might have, and some of the ones that are really tough, because I have colleagues who are so far ahead of me in things like machine learning and anti, you know, the, heading toward artificial intelligence and, and working out <laughs> projects that I don't understand unless I sit a long time with them and have them simplify it for me. And, and I think, how, could, how do we tell people about that as well? That's, that's, a, that's a tough one. The, 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 the notion that migrant kids would be coming up from Central America because of environmental change doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, we see this uh, in Europe as well, and we see this across Africa, and certainly places, well, you, we, you've worked in Africa, I've worked in Africa, but I remember seeing places in um, Burkina Faso where desertification meant, that based on, on global warming, where literally this, you know, a tide of sand was moving across grasslands. The desert was simply, you know, a true sand desert was moving and moving, and then it would engulf a village, and then it would engulf another village. And the, 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 I met people who, from those villages, you know, in, in, in the Ivory Coast over the border, who were then being caught up in highly exploitative agricultural work and, and like that. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm certain of it. And not least as well, because the, the, we've talked a lot about how people who are enslaved, and certainly in, in the Americas, and certainly in South America, in highly destructive work, in you know, cutting down protected forests. I mean, that's the most obvious when you have these, you have enormous protected forests like the Amazon, which is now, after Bolsonaro, right on the edge, right? It's right on the edge in terms of its ability to, absorb, to be the great carbon sink of the Western Hemisphere. There's been so much cutting under Bolsonaro that they're talk, the, the climate scientists are saying, this is, this is close. It, 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 it may, it, obviously, it'll still absorb carbon, but it won't absorb the amount of carbon that we need it to absorb to, to actually re, reduce and keep things in, in the balance that we want. Now, what, which ones am I, I leaving out of what you were asking about, I wonder? Um, Oh, back, you know, I'm thinking about that ILO report we did together. That was so interesting, and I learned so many lessons from it, and some of the lessons had nothing to do with what I learned from you and from Laurel and others, but was, was in the politics of it.
Because one of the things that was mentioned by, was by, what about these international political zones? That piece of work was, was, in, was originally commissioned by the International Labor Organization. And there was a chap who I had known at um, Anti-Slavery International who had been a worker in international labor for a very long time. His name was Roger Planch. He'd gone to the ILO and had taken hold of their, their forced labor space, and he had begun to commission this kind of work. And, and we carried out this work. And then he handed this in to the, to the head of the ILO, who put it in a drawer and tried to suppress it. And it was the first clear portrait. And <clears throat> We're, what is this about? And they said, well, you know, the United States is our largest funder. And if we, and if we, and, and the head of the ILO said to Roger the, there, but, but passed to us, that, you know, if, if, if we offend the United States of America and its government, uh, they'll cut off our money. And if they cut off our money, the, the International Labor Organization will collapse. Which simply takes us in that space where you have to actually try to do these things at a very large scale. But if you do, you end up running it you know, head on into groups like the World Bank or the ILO. Sometimes they're behind you, sometimes they're not, and so forth. I, did, I actually got two senators to call him. One left, one right, right? <laughs> Sam Brownback from Kansas, Paul Wellstone from Minnesota, okay. about as far apart as you yeah, can get. Didn't, didn't do a thing. But I had worked with the UN and the ILO before, and I, had, and I had put something into the contract they sent us that said if they didn't publish it, we would have the right to publish it separately. And we put that in there, and, we got, and that's how we got that out. But it's a very, you know, one of the things is that somebody last night was saying, well, well the UN, we've got to get the UN behind this. But the UN is like the feudal system. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of little duchies and, and fiefdoms, and, and they are constantly struggling with each other. And, and, and that makes it harder to truly mobilize the kind of mobilization we need. Now, let's look back to Enrique. The drop in price. It's, a, it's, it's so blatantly obvious how deeply the price has fallen, right? that, that, it's, that it's actually hard sometimes to grasp. But you're, you're touching on all, and, and, it, and it varies from place to place. You know, it's not just about the glut of human beings, but it's about the glut of people neglected within societies as well. Right? Yeah. So if you're, in a, if you're in a context where people are, are literally treated as if they have no rights. And India is a great example of this, right? We have what seems to be a constitutional democracy in India, but we have this caste system that is one of the most racist things you could ever believe in. And we're not even talking about the people on the caste system, not the people at the bottom. We're talking about the people who are in the group below the bottom, and then the people who are below that. There's two more layers below below, right? When you get down to what are called the tribals, Right and so forth, yeah, and uh, b below the un the what that used to be called the untouchables, the Dalits, they're low, but there's even lower, right? And uh, I was working in that space just recently, and I found people were shocked to learn that in just the way it was in Mississippi in 1955, 
you know, a Dalit can't drink from a water public water fountain without being assaulted. If they're seen to do it, they'll be beaten on the street. I mean, we're at that level of racism, and we think that's in the past, but it's, 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 it's not. And what it means is that that population is systematically pushed lower and lower and lower. And nobody, literally politicians don't care about what happens to them. So it's easy to say, we can put them there, and they can have those problems, and we can uh, and build up on, in the other direction. But also, it's, there's something about mechanization in all this as well. Because a lot of the people who are caught up in these lowest jobs that, that that, that require no thought or, you know, they're, they're grim, they're dirty, they're dangerous, they're demeaning jobs. And, well, I'm going to tell you the, the, the thing that clicked this in my mind quite a few years ago, but was when I went to a quarry and I saw families that were enslaved and they were making sand with hammers out of sandstone. Oh and as a, and I thought, and it wasn't, I mean, that, that's horrible. But I thought also, but how can you make money out of handmade sand? I mean, sand is ubiquitous, right? There's enough sand in the world. We don't, we don't need to have children beating stones to make sand. And I realized, well, you can only do this if, if labor is, is free, is fundamentally free. Right? You know, just a tiny input of food, and, and, you've, and you've got it. Now, in those zones where you can still do that, you, you, and you can get away with it if there's, if there's impunity, you, and you can just run roughshod over a group of people who have been chosen to be run roughshod over, right? and, then, and then you can make that, that happen. And, and, it, and of course, if one of the things that we, that we see is that occasionally there are these Landowning families, and I'll go back to India again, who's, when the son comes along and he's been off to university or something, he'll say, Dad, we don't need to do this anymore. Right? We, we can actually buy a Japanese sand crusher machine for $2,000, and we don't have to have all these people anymore. Now, then they'll just dump them. Yeah. But, you know, they're, they're, and it's the same with bricks and all that kind of stuff. You can, you can actually buy this equipment. But then it's also true that we've now crossed to 8 billion people on the planet, and you have these vast numbers of people who have been excluded economically and from the education and political and representation system. And what, what, what can, are you going to be able to do to lift them up? Right? Get them to replant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trees. And the free trade part of it is absolutely the part of this as well. You see this all over um, South Asia, Southeast Asia, down you know, into places like Malaysia and Borneo and New Guinea, and I'm, and I'm thinking about fishing and forestry, and, and then the, the free trade where they've removed the crucial forests that are the carbon sinks and then replaced them with um, some of the, these, these basic crops that are just highly, highly uh, depleting of the soil. They are not doing any carbon exchange to speak of and so forth, and, and they use the indigenous labor to do that, and and there's virtually no control over wages or required laws, you know, and things like that. I mean, the the, the we we sadly it's we're the ones who get to, to benefit from that, 
because of the things that the palm oil, for example, that, that is both ecologically damaging and tough on, on the workers and, mm. and, and, you know, not particularly, and, and the cost of, uh, the, one of the reasons it permeates the foodstuffs in North America is because it's so inexpensive, right? Mm. And it's inexpensive in part because the labor cost is, is, is close to zero. Um, so tech, <laughs> good and bad, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, but one of the things you won't find is people who are enslaved actually like building computers, right? I mean, the, the, the work done by people in slavery is virtually all at the lowest possible level. And, and it's about really bringing a lot of that to an end, but also having the right types of response about how do you bring it to an end in a humane way. When I was a small boy, it was right at the end, and I come from the South, and it was right at the end of when the mechanization of cotton mm. occurred. Mm. And because and when I was a wee wee lad, there were, and there were black schools and white schools, the black schools would be shut at harvest time, and the white schools stayed in, in session. Mm. And all the black kids would be moved out into the fields to pick all the cotton, but then the combines came. And all of those families were in, you know, they were just impoverished even more than the impoverishment that they had before because they couldn't even have that work. They didn't, they was, literally weren't needed. And of course, part of that was, was, was the great push that meant where I was, from, or my family were from, that toward Chicago because yeah. that was directly north and, that, and, the, and the movement and the migration. But it, it, it didn't happen until much later that, the, that any government tried to reach in there. Actually, it was Clinton who tried to reach into places like the Mississippi Delta and say, those people who had been under that total control, let's now find a way to at least build housing that's worth living in for the people who stayed behind and so forth. You know, they've asked a number of questions to the point that um, I could talk for three or four hours and and I don't think that's what you want me to do so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna quickly go to to to, to Arlie and and try to think about in some way you're you, you know you were asking how do we build the united way of anti-slavery or mm -hmm. and, and of course if it were the if it were the true united way it wouldn't be the united way of anti-slavery it would be the united way of the liberation of, of the planet, That's because right. it would be about liberating our ecology and our mm -hmm. and our and our you know, mm -hmm. how we do our education, and it would, it would be a much wider, larger kind of push and pressure along. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not I'm not sure. And I think I have to read your book, which I haven't yet, the one about the, the right-wingers, in part because one of the things that I've, that, that I, that I've often felt a little bit of dismay about mm -hmm. is how the fragmentation of ideas and the polarization of ideas have made me feel like, how on earth are we going to crack through to this space to at least a point where there's enough generalized acceptance, understanding, a kind of central kind of thinking that would help us move in a direction that would be about fostering rights, mm -hmm. sustenance, growth, and all those things, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. 
And I, I, I said last night, I'm, a, I'm, 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 I'm pathologically optimistic to the point that, you know, my love life alone has been chaotic, right? But that's over a long time, say. But the point being that I'm normally completely ready to take on and, and be positive in all directions, and yet this context that you were writing about, I, I find just so challenging and hard to think through. So I, I'm, I'm hoping you're gonna lead us there. The, <laughs> it's, it was kind what you were saying about the people who have stuck at this space a long time. And it's interesting that, in fact, uh, you know, you mentioned Thomas Clarkson, uh, and he's a, he's in some ways a hero of mine. And uh, but and and you won't have known him you, unless unless you you've you've read Bury the Chains. But um, you know, he was a he was a university student, and uh, was had won this special prize, and it was about and he was an orphan in a way. His father had died, and, and he was about to launch on this fantastic career and go straight up British society. This is in the year 1785. And then he's 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 this prize that he's won is been is because the 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 essay it was an essay contest and the essay question was is it moral to enslave others against their will and he took that on and didn't know much about it but and this is remember slavery is legal Britain is making the equivalent of billions from the transatlantic slave trade it's all over the planet but he studies hard, he works hard, he wins the, the prize, and which is, would lift him into the government positions and church positions, and realizes he can't. he can't. He can't take those jobs. He's got to listen to his heart and his mind and his conscience, and he, and he goes and meets up with some Quakers and some other Anglicans, and before you know it, they founded the very first NGO in human history. This, this committee for the abolition of the slave trade. Mm -hmm. and, and there's 12 people sitting around a table in a bookshop, and, and they invent the, the non-governmental organization, right. and the very first one, and which has now grown over the years in, and is still with us, and it's, now it's called Anti-Slavery International, and it's still based mm -hmm. in London and all like that. Mm -hmm. But the thing with, with Clarkson was that he, he, was, he was 21 years old yeah. when he made that decision. And he was he stuck at it until he died at eighty six or seven, right. and became friends with Frederick Douglass. Yeah. He came to the United States. He went to other countries. He's one of the most boring writers I've ever <laughs> read in my life. But he could talk, and he could organize, and he and he stuck with it. And he he rode his horse more than forty thousand miles a year. To go to to teach and train and inspire and so forth. Now he got off his horse on his <laughs> way to London to meet the Quakers, yeah. and yeah. that's when he thought, "Yeah, oh, I've got to spend my life on this." Yeah, and he spent his life on it. Yeah, he absolutely spent his life on it. There's something about it, right? Mm -hmm. to, that when you say there's something so fundamental and basic about slavery, right? It's just so simple, you know. It, it, it's 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 like being against you know, dill pickles when you don't want them or something. I mean, it, it, it makes it easier to make it happen. And I think that's one of the reasons that it holds on to us and like mm -hmm. that. But there have been others like that, absolutely. And I, and I just hope we can all, if we could all feel a little bit of that same notion 
even if we don't have to live it out every moment, but every day we, we have that like inside us a little bit and we say, oh gosh, these, these shrimp, I, I've heard about this, right? Maybe I won't buy these shrimp, right? Maybe I'll make sure they're, they're from somewhere else. And, and, and all of those little tiny things that we could do that would kind of make those turn into little streams into rivers and all that. Um, I barely touched what you talked about, but I can see the body language saying, we only have two and a half hours left. <laughs> a Castro-length uh, lecture. Uh, thank you, that's great. I'm gonna suggest that we take two or three questions from the floor, and um, anyone should feel open yes, to observing, commenting in any way possible, and then we can maximize our our, uh, our time, if that's okay yeah. with you. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, questions, please. And we have a, um, a, uh, a person to live. Thank you. Charles was. This, yep. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us. But my question is, I think if we agree that everything is connected and the bug that we rest on is the ripple effect going all the way to the inverted pyramid in the form of suicide, deaths of despair, for instance? Is there a way to say, we're all connected, and yes, there are people in the sewers, but you may be up on the top of the mountain, but nonetheless, the emotion reaches you in the form of suicide rates. Is there a connection? Is, what is what is the... What is the rate of suicide in the 45 million compared to China and the U.S., for instance? Sometimes when you're trying to solve a problem, the, the best way to solve it is to make the problem larger, not smaller, yeah. because yeah. you begin to bring in other constituencies. I think, uh, I think Arlie was going yeah. in that yeah. direction. If you, yeah. if you somehow figure a way to bring in the right. Yeah. Um, and is there some, I mean, when you said for, for uh, if few hundred dollars a person, you can open a school and and you know liberate 500 kids right off the spot for, from slavery. But you haven't really solved the problem except that you've taken 500 kids out of the equation, and then that's room for 500 new kids in the equation. There's got to be some kind of a larger um, um, gestalt that you could go after, um, for, for which the the impact of resolving that somehow um, gets us to the, to the problem of slavery, rather than focusing on the problem of slavery, hoping that you'll somehow get to the impact, somehow bootstrap your way into the larger things. It could be climate, could be, could yeah. be capitalism. These are things that are not going to go away all that easily, but, but it could be that, the, that that's the, the way to get it, not to, not to narrow your focus. Yeah. Broadcast, not narrow. So every two minutes, a girl is married. Are child brides considered slaves in your scholarship? Yes. And um, I just wonder if you could expand on that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there was another question in the back. Why don't we take that one too? Thank you so much. I um, I don't hear much about the overpopulation. Um, and this ties in to religion. I think you mentioned yesterday, Kevin, something about the negative impact without religion and the Templeton report. I, I've been, I haven't been a student in a long, long time, so my notes aren't that good. Yeah. Does that, 
Did that ring a bell? I, yes, I was actually talking about the negative impact of religion. A negative impact of religion. Yeah, it in, seems of certain. I mean, so it, much it, of this is tied to the fact that we have no moral compass. It, I mean, it, to live with slaves in this modern day, it, it, I, I don't know what you can speak about that. And sure, sure. no religion tied to population. You know, I think of the Catholics um, just having a bunch of children um, to work the land in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They don't do that anymore. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. But, but, okay, let's, yeah. let's deal with those four. And yeah. we'll start with you, Kevin. But other people should feel yeah, completely please. comfortable jumping in, well, adding to. A, a quick one I want to direct straight back to you. Because that, that system, system of liberation that occurs at the, at the community level uh, is not just about a removing a few people temporarily. Those uh, villages, once they go through the process, never go back. And they are dramatically transformed. And you know, the, 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 the more we can expand those sorts of programs of liberation, uh, the more, because it's permanent. It's absolutely permanent. They never go back. Well, who drives the fish if you take the kids off the fish drying line and put them in school? Well, that, well it, the fish driving line, that's in a different country. But that fish drying um, was absolutely illegal, occurring in an illegal place, and wasn't supposed to be happening anyway. Right? And it can be done by adults. If you go up the rivers in, in that space, you actually have adults catching the fish and putting them on them themselves. It, it's the, the, slave, you know, the, the criminal slaveholders. But I think the, the, the key thing that I wanted to say to you is that over the last 25 years, we've worked so hard to find our way to processes of liberation of, and, and solidification of that liberation so that, that that particular model in that particular space in northern India, which is, you know, we're up to two or 300 villages now. Who, we're talking thousands and thousands of people who were in hereditary slavery, and now they're not. And when they, and when they, when they break out of that space, the, the, there's a freedom dividend. The economy immediately goes up. And in fact, even the ex-slaveholders do better economically, which is kind of horrific, because they should be in jail, but they won't, they won't put them in jail. But they won't treat them as criminals. But even they do better economically because there's so much more economic activity in, in the in the local area. So, anybody? There were. Uh, yeah, uh, Arlie, please. Well, in a way, we're all, I think, uh, focusing here on how um, how to build a constituency, right? We know this is a very bad thing, and as you've described, and um, I, a moral constituency, and uh, to get enough of one, um, you have to put a bunch together, I think, and and that's done partly through microphones, uh, that is, public people who pick up a cause, and. Um, some of them are in Hollywood. I, I, for example, Jane Fonda has what she calls Fire Drill Fridays. And she's now going down to Louisiana uh, to oh, wow. uh, uh, Cancer Alley and uh, interviewing people there and interviewing activists. And uh, 
going to Texas, uh, where there's uh, Mexican-American activists uh, uh, working on oil rigging. And so, you know, you don't, it, let's not turn that away. It's not the only thing. But if we could just kind of uh, inspire mm -hmm. certain people who have a microphone and aren't doing anything with it, you know, um, that would add, it wouldn't be a total solution, but it would help. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I just add in answering that too, is I think one thing, this is what we've learned in our research at the center, and I'm sure Kevin has as well. We worked in Northern Uganda with what was called the Padir Girls Academy. And what happened during the years of the Lord's Resistance Army was they were going in and they were abducting children. And the younger children were armed, uh, but the, the teenagers, the girls, were given up as sex slaves to the commanders. And they were in, in the bases across in South Sudan. What happened when the Lord's Resistance started losing and moving out is many of those, those young women came down with children. And there were nine child reception centers around northern Uganda. And we actually worked with the Mark MacArthur Foundation to get the Padere Girls Academy established. So, and this was local women who ran this organization, who gave, you could have their training for these women uh, with children because they wouldn't be accepted back into their families. This was yeah. a cultural issue was going on. And they were able to either get uh, training to become bakers or to go on and go to college. So I also think when we think about uh, forced labor, we think in the big scale, we've got to do something about it. We also have to remember that you have to work uh, with those uh, survivors. And that is something that is going on at, yeah. at a level all around yeah. in these countries and needs to be supported as well. Yeah. Yeah. We can also try to, we've got to work to, fight, to end it. We also need to respect uh, that work at the community level. Yeah, that's I just wonder if I could follow up, uh, if you don't mind, on, on this issue. Um, what you described yesterday, Kevin, were cases in which slave labor was in the business of producing commodities that entered sometimes directly into global trade, sure. shrimp, sometimes into, quote, or indirectly into global trade, charcoal to steel to steel implements. Yeah. Not, not, that, doesn't ex that doesn't include all of slave type activities. But my question is, as you well know, because you were part of that movement, going back to the 1990s, a series of advocacy groups, people I'm thinking of Global Witness, for yeah, example, sure. began to tag particular commodities Blood diamonds, mm -hmm. the yeah. Kimberley yes. Agreement over gold, yeah, yeah. which involved working with businesses. On top of that, you had, again, this is the company focus. You had, for example, shareholder activism. Mm -hmm. I happen to work in the oil and gas area, that was one. And yeah. then you had something as dramatic as Dodd Frank sure. and uh, Dodd Frank 1502 and the yeah. conflict minerals legislation, yeah. voluntary, yeah. Uh, which in which companies that sourced from. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, a, B, and C had to disclose to the SEC. My question is, given those types of, the, they're usually called transparency sure, initiatives, sure. 
What's your assessment of what one can learn from those types of activities? Vis-a-vis, oh vis as it were, uh, um, trying to attach that type of name and shame to trade or commodities, coltan and cell phones, you know, that sort of thing. Is there a parallel there, or could one think about lessons learned from that type, those types of transparency activities? Yes, is the short answer. There's a lot to be learned because they've, they've taken so many different forms. And because I, I was tangentially involved with Dodd-Frank, but I was very much part of the group that formed the International Cocoa Initiative, which had been driven by the Senate after we exposed slavery and cocoa production and so forth, right? And there were all of these different ways to approach it. But it's, but, uh, and, and when I say all these different ways to approach it, I literally mean the answer to your question is in a better assessment of which of those forms of response were most efficient. So I've written, for example, uh, in a book some time back about what we did with cocoa and how it changed the situation and how it wasn't about being uh, bashing, it wasn't about bashing companies, it was actually about creating a situation in which the companies were forced to work together, and then they found that they actually kind of, it was okay to work together, and then they actually continue to do pretty remarkable transfers of millions of dollars into West Africa to do things on the ground. Uh, is it perfect? No. Is it better than almost any of the other types of uh, ways that, to get the corporations to, to work together? Yes, it, it absolutely is. But it, we live in this world where, the, where, the, where capitalism, it, this capitalism's a problem, I'm just for me. Personally, it's a, it's a serious problem. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> but particularly uh, so much of it is it, that, that people can play fast and loose with it. So that yes, you can make things happen, but then you end up with, with gold, for example. You can have a good thing about it. And then you have the government of, of Ghana, who says, we're, trying, we're going to keep people from uh, sneaking out of the country with gold. They're, they're mining it, and, they're, and then they're smuggling it out. So what we're going to do is we're going to establish in every almost village in the gold region a government, no questions asked, gold buying space. And we will pay 95% of the market price of gold that day, which basically means if you have a criminal gang and you want to enslave people to dig gold in your backyard, yeah. there's somebody here from the government who's willing to buy it from you. You don't even have to leave home, wow. right? Yeah. Wow. And that solved a problem, a tax problem for the Ghanaian government, but it created even more oh, government, yeah. you know, and it's like that. Yeah. I wanted to say something about child brides, if I may. Please. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad you talked about that. And we actually, I, th I think, again, it's a tiny thing, especially in the United States. We need to work on the language a little bit. Eric said those young girls were taken as sex slaves. I would say those young girls were forced into marriages, which were forced into the enslavement, into commercial exploitation, as well as physical exploitation. I would, I would stretch out those words yeah. as long as it, because the, the, when people talk about sex slaves, it's just a little too much like something you'd find in a, in a dirty magazine. It, it's just, it's not, it doesn't help to really fix that. This country's got a big problem with child brides, a big problem. This is the only country in the world that has refused to sign the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, right? Yeah. which yeah. says there must be some age limits for, for yeah. marriage. Now, individual states do it. You know, and California has an okay law, 
-hmm. when it comes to age of marriage and so forth, but there are states that don't. And then there are states that have something and then they don't enforce it. Right. And you can go into rural parts of places like uh, South Dakota and you can find little towns where people where the girls are getting married at 12 or being taken into and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's, and it's fundamentally, a, 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 it's right at that space. But the other thing that I wanted to say, and maybe it's to you especially, is that there's, a, there's, a, there's an extremely important book that has not been written. And that book is The Enslavement of Women, about the nature of the enslavement of women. Because women can be enslaved in ways, if, if slavery is the total control of a person, mm -hmm. there's a paradox because the enslavement of women means a, a totality of, in, of control that exceeds the totality of the control of men. Because with men, you control their outsides and their productive force, and with women, you control their outsides, their productive force, and their interior abilities to produce children, to be used in, in mm -hmm. abusive and sexual ways. There's an internal part of the enslavement of women which has never been thought through very carefully and written about. I can't write that book. I can't write that book. <laughs> it's, you know, That's it's... Fantastic. <laughs> Kevin, the, uh, but, um, I'll ask you tie her question to the other question about, yeah. or your comment about the other question about religion. Like, here oh, in the US, oh. like, where is mostly religion driven, right? That there? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's right. certainly the some of it is. Some of it's not. I mean, some of it's just people like, you know, well, that. Yeah, but I, that, I, I think if you think about like some of those Mormon sects Mormons. in, in the Arizona, F the F F FDLS, or, yeah. or the Jewish, uh, some of the, uh, yeah. the, yeah. the, the traditional the Hasid Jewish, Hasidim, Europe, yeah. like, I, the yeah. religion, which, which might be why the U.S. is not willing to sign this. Oh. Well, originally, the reason they wouldn't sign the, that convention was because it, it said that you had to, that you couldn't in, in, in bring people into your military if they were under the age of 18. That was the key reason they didn't sign the UN Declaration on the Rights of the Child. Yeah. But, but I, <laughs> they would, they, they're probably okay with the other two. Uh, Jane, we have an, uh, enough time for another round of questions. Um, so. Yesterday you said, as a slave, you live like mostly in the moment and you can't imagine anything else other than being a slave. And it's like g generational. So families upon families have been slaves. Um, how do you think that um, you, they can be enlightened to like a different way of life other than slavery? Ah, thank you. Could you pass back to the gentleman behind you? Oh, thank you. I'm sorry, I don't have a short question. All of my questions are probably quite complicated because I'm having a hard time even figuring them out. I have a brief comment I'd like to make for the edification of the group. And I don't have a lot of information about it, but it's recently come to my attention that a number of people have been working for a number of years uh, to get Japan to raise its uh, age of legal consent, which is 13. And uh, today, and that there's a good chance that that's going to happen this year. Thank you very much. Where, where is Third question here, then we'll yeah. come back Japan. to the group. Oh. Um, so I have a question uh, regarding. Uh, so you're talking about the you know the mental block of you know these slaves of, of freeing themselves. Like, 
has, has there been any unifying ideology or, or group like a tr international trade union or, or, or things like this that have attempted to kind of unite these people who have been fragmented so they could offer uh, greater resistance to, to this? Thank you very much. So please, anyone can respond, um, and then we'll, I think we have to begin to wrap up. So, uh, Kevin, you can begin if you wish. Uh, it's your, well, your I'll, I'll touch on atemporality. Uh, we've learned so much from, from slavery survivors who have joined us in, in the rights lab and who have, in fact, gone all the way through their PhDs now and have become significant researchers in their own. But people who, one in particular, who, who grew up right here in San Francisco and went to this university, and was but used as for child sex, sexual exploitation uh, for quite a long time uh, by her own family. And it, yeah, so it's an, an ugly tough, but it was fundamentally enslavement. But here's the thing. They've taught us about the state of mind of people in slavery. And one of the things that I got, I've got to assure you is that if you've lived in freedom all your life, you can't imagine it. You literally just can't. You can learn about it, but you can't know it because there's this, this state of, of, of constant fear, very often constant violence, leading you to living in an eternal present where you, you know that if you think about the future, you could be harmed for that. If you think about the past, you could be harmed for that. If you think only about what you want, the person who controls you wants and needs and you stay in that present at all times and in space, you don't move around, then you can, you can at least reduce the amount of pain that comes with being a person in slavery. Um, do you think that a symptom of slavery could be dissociation, like mentally? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely it is. Yeah, absolutely it is. Thank you. Any of the interlocutors would like to say any last words at all of any sort? Uh, just, just say one on comment on that. Uh, going back to the Lord Resistance Army, uh, while we were working uh, with the Padere Girls Academy, uh, actually went in to interview young women who had given back a commercial sexual exploitation. And um, many of them said they couldn't talk about it because Joseph Coney uh, controlled their minds. Yeah. yeah. And so you can see the profound effect. And that why, why it goes back to why we also need to support those survivors and, and help them. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, Please, uh, I know Carly. that uh, um, when you take a, a a person such as you've described, but you put them in a community yeah. with yeah. other victims, yeah. uh, as Eve Ensler has done mm -hmm. in Africa mm -hmm. with the uh, City of Hope. Uh, they come alive. It doesn't take a lot of time for the weeping to begin and the stories to come. And uh, it's not immediate, but there is a recovery that sort of wants to happen that's yes. on the other side of this Absolutely. tragic story. Yeah. Well, we are coming to the end of our time, alas. So let me just thank the interlocutors, Arlie and thank Rudy, you. Eric, for their wonderful comments, and especially you, Kevin, oh. for coming here oh. and giving so generously of your time and such yeah. stimulating yeah. and unbelievably important work yeah. that you and others are doing. Thank yeah. you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.